This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. So my talk is about some of my work on violence and morality. Just for a bit of background on me, I'm trained as a, a, you know, in psychology and anthropology. I only dabble in philosophy, so this is very exciting for me to be here talking to you. The central question in my research is a descriptive one, not a normative one, which is about what motivates someone to hurt or kill another person. And if you look at the social science literature, it's going to tend to revolve around these sorts of explanations. So perpetrators uh, fail to control their emotions. They uh, dehumanize their victims. They lacked empathy. They were uh, disengaged somehow. They gave in to some selfish temptation to do something they knew was wrong. There was some sort of mental illness. If you look at those sorts of explanations, they tend to have a common theme in play, which is that uh, violence happens when something has gone wrong in the psychology of the perpetrator. Uh, they, they failed to feel the right emotions. They couldn't control their emotions. They couldn't see their victims suffering for what it was. And as a kind of uh, Western liberal professor, this in, this these sorts of explanations kind of make sense intuitively. If I were introspect in myself and think, well, why would I ever hurt another person? Uh, the answer I might come up with would be would say, well, I would never, never kill someone or engage in some other horrible atrocity unless uh, I had somehow gone crazy. Something, something must have disconnected or, or gone loose in my mind. But as a researcher who is studying violent practices across history and across cultures, uh, these explanations were not very satisfying. And the reason was I couldn't use them to explain a case like this. This is taken from a, a court case in Saudi Arabia. And here, two men have gotten into a fight. One of the men was paralyzed in that fight. And what the paralyzed victim is asking of the judge is he's asking the judge to paralyze his attacker in return. And when he asks the judge to do this, the judge doesn't respond by saying, absolutely not. That's absurd. We're not going to do that. Instead, the judge says, uh, I'll look into it. And he sends letters to several hospitals asking if they could sever the man's spinal cord. And when the hospitals get this request, they don't say, under no circumstances are we going to do that. That would be incredibly unethical. Instead, they say, might be possible. Maybe we could actually sever the spinal cord at the exact same place. And so unless you're willing to look at a case like this and think that there must be some sort of uh, collective mental illness among the victim, the judge, and the doctors, those sorts of explanations aren't going to work for cases like this. I also can understand something along these lines. So this is taken from an ethnography of uh, bar fighters in Louisiana. And so th this is somebody who, who gets into bar fights with such regularity that he can actually earn a spot in a study like this. And when he is asked, well, why do you keep getting into bar fights? Uh, what he doesn't say is he doesn't say, oh, I know uh, so foolish of me. I just can't control my temper. I get so mad and then I lash out. Instead, what he says is, uh, I'd feel guilty if he didn't fight. I'd feel like I let everybody else down if he did not fight. This doesn't sound like someone whose primary problem is a lack of self-control. 
And so together with the anthropologist Alan Fisk, uh, we decided to step away from Western liberal professor intuitions and instead uh, look at what perpetrators actually say about their violence. So investigate historical documents, perpetrator accounts, ethnographies of violence uh, across historical and cultural contexts and see how they explain their own actions and use that as our starting point for getting at what are the motivational drivers of violence. And to do this, we define violence as intentional action that is directed toward another living being, and it's characterized by physical harm. Now, that is limiting in a certain sense, but you have to put some limits on it in order to make it theoretically tractable. For motivation, we allow that to be defined phenomenologically. So what does the perpetrator of violence feel about their own actions? And we have three broad classes of motivation here. The first two are instrumental and reactive. So instrumental violence refers to cases in which the perpetrator uh, doesn't have any particular moral feelings about what they're doing. They just see violence as a kind of expedient means to achieve their goals. And then we have reactive motivations. These are cases in which people kind of lash out with violence in ways that would violate their own moral codes, but they nonetheless would disapprove of these actions upon reflection. And then finally, we have this third category of violence. Uh, these are cases in which uh, the perpetrator is harming another person because they feel that they are morally justified in doing so. They feel that that violence is morally obligatory, and they feel that they'll be praised by their social group for doing so. And when you look at violent practices across the world, and we're looking at every kind of violent context we can find, so war, uh, homicide, genocide, uh, sexual assault, corporal punishment, dueling, sacrifice, uh, and, you know, any, anything uh, that we could find, what you find is that uh, across all of these kinds of contexts, uh, most perpetrators are claiming that their actions are motivated by moral sentiments. They hurt others because they feel like it's the right thing to do. They feel like they have to do it. And they feel uh, as if that violence is virtuous. Now, this doesn't Im imply that violence comes easily. So, you know, hurting another human being can feel horrific. It can feel nauseating. It can feel awful to the perpetrator, but they do it anyway. So, you know, if you dive into uh, icy waters to save someone who's drowning, um, that can be very aversive to do, but you do it because it's the right thing to do. And I think the same thing is true for a lot of violent acts. It also doesn't imply that violence is selfless. So I, I don't know at what point morality became uh, conflated with altruism, but it's, it's never been true. So, uh, you know, for thousands of years, people have been kind to their neighbors because they want to go to heaven and not to hell. That's a selfish action, but it's also the bedrock of morality for millions of people. And finally, I often get this question of, well, if you're just going off of what perpetrators say about their actions, then, then is it all just kind of a post hoc justification? Um, I would argue that while it's true, I can't get inside the head of an individual perpetrator. If it's intended to be a justification to excuse blame, it's a really bad one. So if your goal was to get out of trouble, then you would want to say that, well, uh, the violence was an accident. It didn't happen. Uh, there were other circumstances in play, but that's not actually what we find. What we find is that perpetrators say, yes, I did it. That person deserved it. I would do it again. 
And so I would flip this sort of question on its head. And I would say that in the absence of any other evidence about perpetrators' motivations, then really as our starting point, we should use what perpetrators say and take it at face value while keeping some skepticism, but using that as a better bedrock for starting our investigation rather than our own intuitions about what we in our own particular context as researchers might think would lead us to violence. All right, so returning to this original framing, the big idea here is that actually uh, most violence in the world isn't caused by a breakdown or an absence of morality, it's actually caused by the presence of morality. And when you shift your perspective toward thinking of violence as being driven by uh, the activation of moral sentiments and thoughts rather than the deactivation of them, then the relationship between violence and psychological processes like self-control, like dehumanization, like self-interest all start to shift as well. And so in the next phase of this talk, I'm going to shift from the sort of ethnographic anthropology of violence and into the experimental psychology of violence to demonstrate ways in which uh, morally motivated aggression and harm uh, it has different characteristics from aggression that's caused by uh, morally disengaged motives. Uh, to do this, I'm going to rely on psychological experiments. Uh, this relies on a variety of quantitative methods. Uh, so these are things like attitude survey research, uh, hypothetical vignettes. So these are kind of moral dilemmas that you present to people about, well, how would you judge the actor in these dilemmas or how would you behave theoretically? And then economic games, which get at um, you know, actual behavior where you're, you're harming people monetarily, uh, what kinds of decisions do people make? And then we'll also, again, still be relying on people's uh, own narratives and personal experiences with violence. Uh, the participants are all going to be U.S.-based. That causes you know, real limitations that you should, you should keep in mind as I'm going through these experiments. Uh, we do collect a lot of demographic variables. That's not going to show any interactions with the main findings I'm going to present to you, so I'm not going to talk about that stuff. And then in terms of content, I'm going to focus in the domain of moralistic punishment just because it's the most tractable with American participants. But all of the dynamics I'm going to be describing to you are meant to capture a, a broader array of violence. I'm going to go through three projects here that I think exemplify this sort of view. The first is going to be on dehumanization. So this is a piece of propaganda material from World War II about um, Japanese soldiers. And I should have mentioned at the beginning of the talk that there are occasionally going to be some images that people may find uncomfortable in this talk. I've tried to only keep those in where they're necessary for the argument. And so in defining dehumanization, the philosopher David Livingston Smith writes that it's very difficult psychologically to kill another human being. The process of dehumanization liberates aggression by excluding the target from the moral community. So I just want to break that logic down a bit more. The idea here is that we have uh, a moral inhibition against harming fellow human beings. Uh, what dehumanization does is it causes the perpetrator to perceive the victim as non-human, as lacking human characteristics. That uh, lack of human perception then disengages those moral inhibitions, creating an indifference to the welfare of that person's life so that now you can kill that person without feeling any guilt uh, or shame about it. This 
particular kind of causal pathway in which we don't want to hurt human beings, but we will if we no longer view them as human, uh, would make a lot of sense if all we did was ever kill people. Uh, but of course, as other uh, philosophers have noticed, uh, have noted, uh, that's not all we do. So, so here's um, this is actually Adam Gopnik in the New Yorker. He's writing, uh, "Well, we don't humiliate vermin. We don't put vermin through show trials. We don't make them watch their fellow vermin die first. Uh, or put another way, this is um, Kwame Anthony Apaya arguing that well, this sort of treatment." is reserved for creatures that we recognize to have intentions and desires and projects. And so we're faced with this question of, well, how do we account for these kinds of violence that don't really make sense if you're seeing your victims as less than human? And to get at this, my uh, collaborators and I, we argue that there's a different path to violence. Uh, and in this path, the idea is that actually, you know, we can start from the same position that maybe there's this kind of moral inhibition against harming human beings. Uh, but what we would argue is that the victims must be perceived as human in order to deserve the harm that uh, that is delivered to them, in order to feel the suffering that we want them to feel, in order to understand why they're being harmed, which is very important to the perpetrators. And so moral motivations, in this case, overpower any inhibitions that you might have toward harming other human beings, creating a more active desire to harm. So this suggests two different kinds of violence and two different pathways. The first is instrumental violence. And here we think dehumanization really is at work. So these are cases in which you don't actually have anything in particular against the victims. You just uh, need to harm them in order to gain some sort of instrumental good. Under those conditions, to the extent that you don't see them as a fellow human being, you're going to be more likely to hurt them. But these sorts of explanations are not very useful for thinking about moralistic kinds of violence, because in these cases, you can't dehumanize your victims because stripping them of their human qualities actually strips away all of the meaning of the violence that you're trying to do. And so we're going to look at this experimentally in a few ways. The first couple of experiments are going to rely on survey experiments. And what we're going to do is we're going to ask our participants about a number of violent practices. Now, some of these violent practices are instrumental practices. These are more structural kinds of violence. So these are cases like uh, support for um, buying goods that were made in sweatshops. And how then do you think of sweatshop labors? Other cases are going to be more uh, direct forms of moralistic violence. So these will be things like killing enemies in war. And what we have on the y-axis, this is your perceptions of the humanness of the victims of these practices. And we use psychological measures here. So to what extent do you think that these people are capable of thinking, uh, intending, having desires, feelings, emotions, those sorts of things? Um, and then on the x-axis, we have the overall approval of these violent practices. And again, for those not familiar with how these sorts of uh, survey methodologies work, um, people are filling out kind of uh, what are called uh, Likert measures of their support. So, you know, on the y-axis, if you put down a five, and it's going to mean that you see this person is fully capable of these sort of human-like qualities. A one would mean that they're not capable at all. Uh, on the approval of violent practices, a seven would mean that you're fully supportive of these violent practices. A one would mean that you're not supportive of these practices at all. And what we're looking to see is, uh, is there a correlation 
between your perceptions of the victim's humanity and your support for the violent practice. So I'll show you the instrumental cases first. When you look at instrumental kinds of violence, uh, what you get is a nice negative correlation. So to the extent that you perceive the victims as less human, you are more approving of these practices. This is exactly what we would predict from a dehumanization perspective. However, our real interest is in uh, cases of moral violence. And when you look at moral violence, that correlation disappears. So the humanity of victims is telling us absolutely nothing about your likelihood of approving of the violent practices. Now, these sorts of practices differ on, on all sorts of criteria. And so um, I'm going to show you another study. Here, we're going to look at one type of violent practice. And this is your support for drone strikes. But what we're going to look at are two different kinds of victims. Uh, one kind of victim are the terrorists themselves, the people that you're actually trying to kill through the drone strike. But the other kind of victim are uh, Iraqi civilians, people who are killed as collateral damage of the drone strikes. These are people you don't want to kill, but they just have to be killed in order to succeed in the mission. And when you look at deaths to civilians, what you find is exactly what we predict from a dehumanization perspective, that to the extent that you see civilians as less human, uh, you are more supportive of drone strikes. But the interesting question is what happens if we ask about the terrorists themselves, the people you actually want to kill? That uh, correlation disappears. So it simply doesn't matter whether you think terrorists are human or not. Uh, or how much humanity you're ascribing to them, that's not predicting your support for drone strikes. Okay. What's nice about surveys is that they get closer to the real-world phenomena that we're interested in. They're a little less useful for isolating causality. I'm going to switch to judgment vignette experiments. Uh, the advantage of these is you can really isolate the causal mechanism. The disadvantage is that they're unrealistic. So here, what we're going to do is we're going to ask people about their willingness to harm another person. Again, using these kind of scale-like measures on the y-axis here uh, is the willingness to harm measure, where seven means that you're very willing to harm, one means you're not at all. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to give people two different reasons for harming. Uh, I should say that these are all the studies I'm showing you here are done with different participants. So each condition has different people. So they're only seeing one kind of situation. And in some situations, participants see that they, they're being asked, well, would you harm this person for money? And other conditions, they're being asked, well, would you harm this person uh, as punishment for a moral transgression that they engaged in? And then in this study, what we're going to do is we're either going to humanize the person you would be harming or we're going to dehumanize the person that you would be harming. And we do that through the language that we use to describe them. So in the humanizing conditions, we use a lot of uh, evocative emotional language. In the dehumanizing ones, we don't. And what you can see is that uh, when we're talking about harming someone for money, people are more willing to do it uh, after they've dehumanized that target. Exactly what we would predict from a dehumanization perspective. But when you're harming someone as punishment for a moral transgression, it doesn't matter doesn't matter whether you humanize them or not. That has no effect. We can do it the opposite way too. So here, uh, we're asking people to imagine that they have harmed someone, either for money or as punishment for a transgression. Or we're asking them to imagine that actually, you know, you thought about it and you weren't able to go through it. You, you decided not to harm one, some, the person. Again, either for money or as punishment for a transgression. 
And the question is, how does imagining harming someone, is that going to affect the kind of humanity you ascribe to them? So here, we're going to ask people, okay, now that you've imagined harming them, um, how human do you think this person is? Again, using those measures I was describing before. And when people imagine harming someone for money, uh, the gray bar here is you've imagined that you harmed them. Uh, the black bar is that you imagine that you did not. You can see that they actually ascribe less humanity to these people, exactly what you would predict from dehumanization. But if you imagine that you harm someone for moral reasons versus that you weren't able to go through with it for moral reasons, it doesn't affect your perception of their humanity. It's completely disconnected. Finally, we get this question of, well, are there any cases in which uh, people might actually uh, humanize victims of moral violence? So in order to do this, we have to kind of artificially depress uh, people's humanity ratings. So we do this by kind of asking about your willingness to harm uh, unconscious victims. Um, again, the goal here isn't realism. The goal here is just kind of isolating causal mechanisms in these studies because they're meant to complement those more realistic studies earlier. And when you do this, you get that kind of reversal. So now um, we're already seeing these victims as relatively low in these human-like measures. And so there's no reason to strip any more humanity out of those victims. And so in those instrumental cases, you don't need to do anything. Whether you harm the person or not, they're already low in, hu in humanness. And so we don't have to ascribe less. But in the moral cases now, what we see is that uh, when you imagine harming someone for moral reasons, then you actually start to ascribe more human humanity to that person. All right. So taken together, I think that these studies suggest that dehumanization uh, sort of predicts violence or, or sort, sort of is going to predict instrumental violence. It can be caused by instrumental violence and it can cause instrumental violence, but that none of that is going to be true for moralistic violence. Now, uh, I am not saying that dehumanization doesn't matter. I think dehumanization is very important, but uh, I think it's important in a different way than we normally think of it. Uh, dehumanization it really matters for the kind of third-party apathy that enables violence to occur in the real world. Dehumanization is important every time we allow something horrible to happen because we don't care. But I don't think that dehumanization is really driving us to want to hurt other people in the first place on our own. Okay. All right. I'm just going to go to the second project. Uh, this is about material incentives. So uh, another idea about violence is that it's not that we dehumanize victims, but really we hurt other people when the benefits outweigh the costs uh, in a way that makes violence expedient. This is taken from an ethnographic work by the anthropologist Scott Atran. He's talking to uh, Taliban fighters here, and he's asking them, well, hey, look, what if a rich relative were to give you a lot of money uh, in order to postpone your martyrdom action? And um, the Taliban fighter uh, responds to him, is that a joke? I would throw the money in his face. Uh, Atrian asks him why, and the fighter says, because only in fighting and dying for a cause is there nobility in life. And it brings up this question of, well, how do people integrate moralistic and material motives? Is it possible that when people 
are motivated by moral sentiments, that they actually start to respond non-rationally to material interests. And in particular, I'm going to uh, look at this in the following way. I'm going to suggest that in the same way that paying kids to read uh, or to donate blood uh, can actually lead people to engage in those actions less, which is what uh, has, has been found in the economic and psychological literature for a lot of altruistic domains, um, I'm going to suggest that a moralistic violence works the same way, that if we pay people to punish uh, others for their moral transgression, moral transgressions, they're actually going to be less willing to do so. And the reason is because when we hurt other people, because we think they deserve it, uh, we want to signal to ourselves and to others that we're a morally good person. And violence is what you do if you're a morally good person. But when we introduce payment as a potential uh, interest for you engaging in violence, that's going to corrupt that moral signal that you send to other people. So now nobody's going to know. Uh, you won't even know. Are you hurting this person because it's the right thing to do? Or are you hurting this person because you're being paid to do it? And if that signal corruption cost is greater than the material benefit that you're receiving, then willingness to hurt other people will actually go down, not up. Uh, so the first way I'm going to do this is through what's called an economic games design. So in this sort of design, what we're going to do is we're going to offer people, we're going to, uh, offer people the opportunity to remove money from another player. The reason they're going to, they would want to remove money from another player is if that player, uh, behaved unfairly in the economic game. And the question is whether our participants are willing to remove that money or not. And we're going to present them with a simple dichotomous choice. If the other player behaves really unfairly, and in this context, that means that they just witness a player give $0 to another player, um, do our participants then want to remove money from that, from that first player? And uh, when we ask them that, about 70% of them say they would. Uh, this is this is typical for this literature. The really interesting question is what's going to go on in our experimental condition. So the, the experimental condition is exactly the same. Only now we have one added wrinkle, which is we tell people, hey, uh, if you punish that player by removing some of their money for their unfair action, uh, we'll also give you a bonus payment. And the question is, what is the presence of this bonus payment going to do to their willingness uh, to punish. According to a standard economic view, it should only increase their willingness to punish because now you have your moral reason to punish the person. They behaved unfairly and you also have a material reason. You're going to benefit from doing so. But if the reason that you punish is to signal that you're a morally good person, then the presence of this material payment may actually interfere. And in fact, that's what we find. So now uh, when we actually pay people to punish others, uh, they're less than half as willing to do it. We also ask people, well, what do you think of punishers who punish uh, for money or not? And um, actually, there's a there's a error on this slide here. There's actually three conditions, a no payment condition, a small payment condition, and a large payment condition. And what we find is that um, the presence of money actually makes your uh, actions of punishing less morally acceptable. So you, the most acceptability for punishment is when you're not being paid to do it. It also makes you seem like a worse person. 
So again, those red bars mean that you're not paid at all. And people view those people as um, having the most moral character. You can also notice that here, the amount of payment doesn't matter. So again, black bars are when you get a small payment. The gray bars are actually a large payment. You can't see that on the graph. And basically what you can see is it actually doesn't matter how much you're being paid. Any payment is bad. So this suggests two routes to actually restoring punishment in the context of payment. One is you could just pay people a lot more such that their um, material benefits from payment exceed the signaling costs. The other is you could repair the signal itself. I do both of these things. So here I'm going to collapse across a couple experiments. Uh, these first two conditions just conceptually replicate what I showed you before. So willingness to punish is higher when people are not paid compared to when they are paid. Uh, if we pay people a lot, then their willingness to punish goes back up. What I'm really interested in is this last condition. So here they're still getting a small payment, but now I give them some false information. I tell them that, well, actually, when we asked people in study two, they told us that even though the, you're getting paid, they understand that the real reason that you're doing this is because it's the right thing to do. When you tell them that other people see it as a moral action, even when they're paid, they're happy to punish and receive payment. Taken together, uh, these studies suggest that, um, you know, when you present material benefits and people are morally motivated to hurt others, they may respond non-rationally. Uh, it also kind of helps us to understand how punishment works and why it looks the way it does. Uh, why is it that when we think of punishment, we tend to think of it in these sort of altruistic terms as opposed to these sort of, uh, you know, seeing the material benefits that punishers often get in the real world? Um, I'll talk about that a little later is uh, that we're starting to work on long-term cooperation. So what happens if you know that people are punishing for the wrong reasons? Um, I'll only bring up one other thing. I want to be really clear. The implication here is not that we should be paying people to be violent. The, as I said, there are you know, whole arms of the state that are paid to, to be violent. Instead, we should be thinking more about, well, what are the kind of moralistic narratives that uh, the state, militaries, police use to justify violence that is interwoven with material interests. And maybe if we understand that better, uh, then we'll be uh, more able to disrupt those narratives. All right, I'll quickly go over this last study, last set of studies. This is about self-control. So oftentimes people think that violence occurs because um, the perpetrators just couldn't control their emotions. This is taken from a uh, perpetrator account. This is Daniel Genesis. He's talking about his time in prison and he's saying that every time that he got in trouble on the prison, he had to go to therapy and they would teach him to count backwards as a key tactic. And he's talking about how it never made sense because uh, just about all the violence he ever saw in prison was deliberate and planned, rather different from the explosions of temper that the programs are intended to cure. According to Genesis, uh, if you lost your temper, temper in prison, if you were somebody who would just blow your top, then that was just a fast way to getting killed in pr prison. That really the way to be violent and to survive was to be very careful and deliberate about your violence. And so this raises this kind of question about, well, what happens for a certain kind of violence, a violence that nobody actually wants to engage in, but everyone is required to do so? And here, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask people, my participants, about their own lives. And I'm going to ask them about um, uh, to tell me about four different events in their life. Uh, two events in which 
they engaged in violence and two events in which they did not engage in violence. And for two of those events, I'm going to ask them, hey, should you have avoided this violence? And for two of them, I'm going to say, hey, is this violence you should have done? And what you find is that for violence that people believe they should avoid, and so on the y-axis here, these are uh, psychological measures of self-control. So how much self-control you had in those instances for violence that they knew they should have avoided, people say that they had more self-control when they did not engage in violence. This is exactly what you would predict from a self-control model. Question here is what about violence that you know you should have done? Violence that you know was right. And under those conditions, they say that actually they had more self-control when they did engage in violence, more self-control when they did hurt somebody else. In the next study here, we get another set of participants. We're going to use those stories that were provided to us to create new stories. And we're going to look at people's sort of trait levels of self-control. So these are, these are measures that are supposed to get at your underlying self-control across situations. So, you know, you're a person who either, if you have low self-control, you, you have a hard time breaking habits. You wish you had more self-discipline, that sort of thing. And here on the y-axis, we have the scores for, for trait levels of self-control. So people who are higher on this scale have more self-control in their life. And then on the, the x-axis, we have the willingness to aggress. And we're going to ask people about two different kinds of violence, violence uh, that they knew they shouldn't have done, or, or sorry, this isn't even about their own lives. These are, they're, we're asking them to evaluate violent episodes in other people's lives and violence that they know is wrong, but the person does anyway, and violence that the person uh, knows is right, but they really don't want to do it. And for that first kind of violence, violence that the person really wants to do, but they know is morally wrong, you get this kind of negative correlation. So to the extent that you lack self-control in your own life as a person, uh, you're more supportive of somebody else's violence that is morally wrong, but desirable. But when you look at violence that is undesirable, violence that the person really doesn't want to do, but they know it's the right thing to do, then you get the opposite. Uh, greater self-control predicts greater support for these acts of violence. Okay, uh, I'm just going to conclude here by, again, reiterating this idea that when we see violence as driven by the activation of our sense of morality, then our whole ideas about, well, what causes violence, they all get turned on their heads. Oftentimes, violence might be driven by the recognition of somebody's humanity. It might be materially irrational. It might be driven by more self-control, not less. I'm going to stop there just to give you a sense of some of the work that we're doing going forward. Uh, we're really starting to think more about the experiences of victims. We're really starting to think in the clinical setting about cases of moral injury. So, you know, situations in which people have witnessed or experienced something that violates their moral sense of right and wrong in the context of violence and, and how they recover from that. Uh, and we're thinking much more about what kinds of um motivational drivers in terms of how to curb violence that there might actually be. So if people are driven by morality rather than material incentives, then maybe we need to come up with more moralistic incentives rather than material ones, those sorts of questions. Uh, thank you very much. And I'll um, hand it back over to George. <laughs> thank you so much uh, for, 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 for joining us and, and, and for your talk. You know, when I sent out the invitation, um, 
part of our discussion was me interested in, in bringing these topics maybe to an audience uh, of scientists and folks in the STEM who may usually think about normative ethics, which we often talk about, but don't necessarily think about qualitative or, or, or quantitative approaches to challenge some of the narratives or to challenge some of our own concepts. And so I thought it was really neat how you ended on that slide of some of the places you're going for things like um, um, moral injury, where we think about burnout a lot in medicine and, and, and beyond. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I think I wanted to start there in terms of, I'm curious from a generative um, standpoint, and I'll, I'll wait as we're transitioning to the Q&A for, for folks from the audience to bring up things, but I, I'm curious um, from, from uh, a generative standpoint, uh, if there's been a question that someone's asked you that surprised you, that's led to a, a, a valid line, but unexpected kind of area of, 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 of research or investigation that you pursued or that they pursued? Uh, yeah, so one of the things that, uh, there are a couple of questions that come. So I, I originally, you know, got into this space because my actual interest was in moral disagreement. So how is it that somebody in one culture or one place can think of an action as morally abhorrent and wrong and terrible, but somebody else in another culture sees that exact same action as morally praiseworthy and virtuous. And what happened was when I started to ask this question, um, and also oftentimes when you get into philosophical circles, uh, the response, the answer was that, well, in fact, uh, it's just not true. People would say that they don't actually believe different things, that there must just be some sort of confusion or there, there's missing information. And if actually, if everybody had the same kind of information, then they would actually come to the same conclusions. And so that's the actual answer. And so a lot of my work in the violence space was really to push the idea that actually that's not true. There really are competing values, even on uh, even on actions that might seem atrocious uh, to one group of people. And so that that I think is a you know an example of how this whole line of work that I'm describing to you came from my original work on in the disagreement space and the moral diversity space. Uh, most recently, I think when I've presented this work, there's been this question about, well, uh, okay, people want to resolve their conflicts because of moral motivations, but what makes them choose violence over other kinds of actions? And so we've been starting to ask this question about, well, how does violent action enter into the sort of possibility space for a person's ideas about how to resolve it. And this gets to really fundamental questions about um, socialization of violence, the social norms surrounding violence. And part of what we're starting to argue is this idea that, um, well, uh, if violence is even represented as a kind of possible choice, that very possibility makes it seem more morally acceptable. So take the exact same situation. You know, you are out on the street and somebody is acting threatening towards you and they, they move towards you uh, and then you decide to shoot them. I, as an observer of your action, is my judgment of the morality of your action actually affected by my knowledge about whether you had a gun in the first place? 
Because knowing that you had a gun actually changes my initial cognition about what are the possible solutions to this. And if violence is now a possible solution, what we're starting to argue and starting to look at is this, is this idea that it becoming one of the potential solutions actually makes it seem more morally acceptable because now it's more kind of cognitively accessible, more cognitively fluent to me. So that, that's, that, that's a, another line that has kind of been unexpected and is starting to come from this sort of work. Oh, that's, that's, that's great and it's insightful. Uh, one of the questions that we have um, from our audience is, have you translated any of your research into how to curb gang violence? Um, so I think I would put it the other way that actually a lot of, um, our work and our conclusions is actually informed by successful interventions in these spaces. So, um, if you look at some gang violence, uh, approaches, you can imagine two different kinds of approaches. One approach is that, hey, we're going to really, the, a lot of the sort of uh, and ceasefire style approaches emphasize saying, okay, we're going to call call people in and we're going to let them know you're, you're on the watch list by the police. We think, you know, you're our, essentially our hotspot targets. You've been engaged in a lot of violence. We are going to crack down hard on you. And when you do that, um, on its own, it doesn't seem to be effective. But if you pair it with more social incentives, so now people are presented with people in their communities who they value and trust and respect. And those people tell them, hey, uh, you think that what you're doing is right, but actually we believe it's wrong. That pairing may actually be more effective. And you know, I think this work is more you know, still up in the air. People debate about it a lot. We're really starting to look at this question of whether, um, you know, so, so some of the data I haven't shown you suggests that when people are motivated in their violence for moralistic reasons, uh, they don't seem to respond as strongly to increasing severity and material punishment. They do seem to respond to social information. So if they now start to believe that actually their peers don't actually agree with them, that their peers don't actually think that what they're doing is right, that they get the sense that they won't actually be morally praised for what they're doing, that seems to have a bigger effect for those kinds of uh, transgressions. Great. Um, I think I've asked you to, to speak and I think you've touched on kind of thinking about the normative, <clears throat> excuse me, ethics space and how your work goes beyond that. I'm curious because if you take some time to talk a little bit about biology in, in, in ethics, because I think you've elegantly written on that and you kind of challenge some of people's notions that are out there. I, I'd need to think a little more specifically about which, which writing you're thinking about. Um, but the, uh, there are a couple of things to think here. So I, th I think if you're, uh, this is where there's, there might be a divide between social scientists, psychologists, and and uh, philosophers, particularly kind of analytic moral philosophers, that um, my sense is that if I talk to analytic philosophers, a lot of them might take a kind of moral realist perspective on violence, uh, that there are kind of things that are right and wrong, and they have the same kind of truth value as uh, two plus two equals four or something like that. Um, if I talk to most psychologists or social scientists, they would reject that 
completely. They would take a more naturalist approach and think that, well, you know, um, if the world were different, if evolution proceeded in a different way, then uh, people's moral sentiments and proclivities would be different. And so if you have that kind of more naturalist approach, then you have this question of, well, why is morality the way it is? Why are attitudes toward violence the way they are? And uh, oftentimes you're going to take a an evolutionary or a functionalist approach. At least that's that's closer to the way that I do it. Um, and you're going to think, oh, okay, well, the the function for morality is to promote and sustain large group cooperation, and that becomes your position for working out your theories. Now, what's interesting is we don't know whether that's true, whether that's actually a good basis. Um, there has been recent work that kind of suggests that actually it, it, you may not even need cooperation here. It may just be something about, um, you know, the, the way that people sort of maintain homeostasis in their bodies is going to lead them toward generating kinds of moral norms in groups. I think that kind of work is fascinating. It gets you to the same sort of functional place and it, and it still fits within this sort of more naturalist framework. Um, where what you're sort of trying to achieve within your groups is sort of consensus on various forms of morality. Yeah, that's helpful. And, and I think one of the, the things that really stood out to me is, is that, as I worked through this idea that you can have testify hypotheses, right? And mm -hmm. instead of having these arguments to get to a space about what's right, is you can formulate these hypotheses and ask the questions if the observations or responses fit, which I think you did really elegantly. And, and yeah, I mean, I think there's a, the, there's a sort of meta research question there, right? Which is, um, oftentimes, if you present a theory, if you say that, well, uh, you know, most violence is motivated by moral sentiments, then there is a question about testability, um, which ultimately that answer hinges on how you're defining violence and how you're defining morality, and people are going to disagree about that. But there's a different question that I, I tend to think often gets lost and that we don't focus enough on, which is about generativity. That if if the claim is right that someone is making that, oh, actually, a lot of violence, whether you think it's more than 50 percent or less, but a lot of violence is motivated by moral sentiments. Um, how does that change the patterns of violence that we're going to see in the world and in our experiments? That, I think, in a lot of ways ends up being a more interesting question. And that's where you get the kind of projects that I was showing you today, where we're saying, oh, oh actually, it might be that um, incentivizing violence can reduce it under moralistic conditions, or it might be that humanizing victims can actually have the opposite effect in moral conditions, those kinds of things. And I, I'm curious, right, in your role as an instructor, as you, you present these, these concepts, I know often there's big audiences, right, for the reviewers, it's something like PNAS, but I guess in, in, in with the students that you work with, what do you think are some of the more challenging concepts for them to work through, or what do you think some of the things that they find more interesting that they like to kind of engage with? I, my experience is typically that uh, the further away I get from academic circles, the more accepting and enthusiastic people are toward the ideas. So, you know, if I go to a group of non-academics or students who are just starting in academia 
And I say, actually, you know, a lot of violence isn't really driven by sort of moral mistakes. It's actually very much driven by your sense of right and wrong. They totally get what I'm saying. And so I, I think to the extent that there's pushback on these ideas, it's, it's coming from a lot of training in a sort of uh, Western canon of academic ideas that that might say that, well, no, no, it, it must actually be being driven by some sort of erroneous reasoning or something like that. In terms of where the students are interested, um, you know, the history of research in my field in moral psychology uh, really comes out of a sort of branch of academic philosophy. And it was really about saying, okay, here are some normative claims that have been made. Can we test whether this fits with the folk psychology of people or something like that? And I can tell you that when I go to students, uh, that's the stuff they're least interested in. So for them, that's that's very academic. It's kind of silly uh, because oftentimes the 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 sorts of dilemmas are, are unrealistic. Um, what students are much more interested in now are, are sort of real world applications. So how is it that when you think about something like uh, moralistic violence, how does that maybe help us to understand police brutality or something like that? How are we going to take these sorts of ideas and apply them to thinking about um, activism or and how to disrupt institutions and structural forms of violence. Those are the kinds of things that students are really much more interested in. Those are the things that I'm much more interested in. I find the stuff that, and so generally, uh, you know, the students are coming up with with more exciting ideas in this space. I think. Oh, neat, neat. And, and, and I think <clears throat> one of the questions that I'd also brought up, and maybe in the remaining time, and it connects. Is you know I think in terms of mass media, there's been a greater uh, focus right on individual acts of, of of violence and how they impact communities and in, in, in society more at large. And and I, I know that you're probably engaged more right to discuss those. And I'm curious that balance between presenting your work right, um, and, and and I think you probably do this <laughs> better than, than than a lot of other folks presenting your work. I think in a in a rigorous way. Um, with the conclusions that you think are most evidence-based with maybe some of the discussions or the ways in which other people may want to present your work. And maybe that's a good good place to kind of tie things together. Sure. I mean, um, I, there's there's that one slide I think I, I showed, like, don't pay people to be violent, uh, is actually because I saw after that paper came out, there there was some sort of news story that was like, you know, UCSD researcher says you can re, you know, reduce violent crime by paying the criminals or something like that. I was like, no, no, that's not what we're trying to get at. Um, I think to your question more broadly about public engagement, uh, there is this balance that I'm always going back and forth between of like, and I think a lot of academics struggle to do this, which is uh, we're trained to sort of speak very narrowly within our own silo and space. But the questions that people are interested in the world are much broader than our own niche. And what I sort of have to remind myself a lot of times is I have to tell myself, well, am I sort of um, better than replacement in terms of whoever, whatever expert they're going to talk to? And oftentimes replacement in this context, and if you, if you as the academic don't do it, then it's political pundit or somebody who, who who talks. And so it's might be true that I don't 
specialize in um, mass shootings or mental illness per se, but it is something that I've researched somewhat and I've written about somewhat and I know enough to be able to answer those questions, even if ideally they would the the media would go to somebody who really specialized in those. Um, you know, I may not specialize specifically in police brutality, but I have written about it somewhat and we do have like research that's relevant enough that it makes sense for me to discuss these kinds of topics. And so I, I, I try to kind of keep that balance. And when I'm answering questions, I try to uh, be as measured as possible and then to, to sort of connect to the research that other people are doing, the people who I think are really specialize in these topics. Oh, great. No, that's, 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 that's great. Um, super helpful in terms of, uh, in terms of thinking about these. these Some, sometimes part of the issue is that if you're kind of a generalist studying violence, then the media just says, oh, okay, whatever kind of violence we have, let's just go to this person who we know studies violence versus if you're really the specialist, they don't actually know you. So, so that, that's the sort of communication bridge that that's, that we need to solve. Oh. In the last few minutes, I don't know if there's anything you think we missed or, or you wanted to go back to in, in terms of going over. No, no. I mean, I, you know, on my end, kind of what you, you made this connection yourself, like I'm often really interested these days in, in what is going on in the clinical space. So, you know, if we're engaging in therapies to um, help people recover from uh, experiences in war? Are we just looking at kind of clinical outcomes or are we looking at, at more ethical outcomes at more, you know, um, psychological measures about how they think about the country, how they think about war, how they think about violence afterwards. If we're thinking about, um, burnout, right. As you were mentioning, burnout's an interesting case where oftentimes, uh, it's, it's intersecting with these ideas about empathy and dehumanization and stuff like that. And it's like, well, are there ways to kind of reframe what kind of care we're giving in, in sort of moral or instrumental ways, in ways that can kind of maybe complement where people are at psychologically and emotionally uh, that might help them to get through that. So maybe sometimes it's better to frame it in a more kind of passion-based moralistic way. Other times maybe it's better to frame it in an instrumental way, depending on, you know, where you're at emotionally. So those are the kinds of questions that I think are really fascinating to think about as far as the intersection between uh, the medical space and the sort of moral philosophical space and moral psychological space. Well, thank you. I look forward to your work and what you come up with. So I look forward to, to continuing the discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. And, and thank you all in terms of those who joined us from the, from the audience. Great. Thank you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.